If you would take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. And as we turn to Titus chapter 2, we have been steadily impressed through our study in this section of Scripture with the importance of not just saying that we believe in Christ and, and saying that we believe the gospel of God, but being impressed that indeed we are also to behave according to the gospel. So the gospel is not just a belief, it is also a behavior. It, it should control everything that we think and say and do. Indeed, we understand that for the Christian, grace and redemption, reconciliation to God, salvation, Salvation does not primarily exist as an internal action that is a personal and secretive experience. It is indeed a personal and inward experience, but it has its full expression in every external action and reaction that we have. And so we understand what is being said within Titus chapter 2 is not only are you to believe the gospel, but you are to behave in the gospel. And as we see that, we understand how difficult that is in the midst of our daily lives. We understand that that is a difficult call within this culture for the creed of our culture is just do it. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever fulfills your desires at that moment. Whatever it is that you want to do to bring yourself pleasure in that moment, go ahead and do it. Just do it. And the creed of the culture confronts the call of the Bible. For in the Bible, God calls us not to do whatever we want, but to do whatever He wants. And so... For us who have tasted salvation, for those of us who have tasted redemption, and we know the grace of God in the midst of our lives, we indeed are to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Those who have been reconciled, reaching out to others who need to be reconciled so that all might come to know and to live in the power and the grace of the gospel. Indeed. Men, we are to be men of integrity within the midst of the community. Women, we are to be women of purity in the midst of our city. All of us are to be workers who are really worshiping in the midst of every action. And that is what Paul has laid out there in Titus chapter 2. And so it is right to say that our behavior should be controlled by our belief. And if our beliefs and our beliefs and our behavior don't match up, we've got a problem. Because the gospel is not for just a little place or a little part of our lives. It is for all of our lives. And what we have been pressing in and saying is that really our great goal is to live lives that are so controlled by the gospel that those who know us but do not know Christ might come to know Christ because they know us. We want to see people changed and transformed. But you know what the greatest testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel and the transformation power of the gospel is? It is a transformed life lived within each and every one of us. Let me ask you this morning, does the gospel control you? Does the gospel guide every word that you speak and every action that you take? Does the gospel control all the interactions of your everyday life? For that is the desire of God. And yet there are two errors when it comes to the pursuit and practice of religion within the midst of our culture, within the midst of all cultures. And those two errors, first of all, begin with legalism. There's a movement that says, hey, you know what? You in and of your own merit can you earn acceptance before God that is a falsehood that is a devious falsehood from the depths of hell 
The reality is the legalist will say that you must do something. You must do anything to get into a good standing with God. You must do enough to be acceptable within his kingdom. And yet it was in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 that it said, For by grace you are saved. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. As we come today... We must reject legalism, but not only should we reject legalism, but we should reject the second error, which is licentiousness. Licentiousness is that act of that person who would say, you know what, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I got dunked, and now I'm good. I don't ever have to worry about the clear commands of Scripture. I don't ever have to worry about the clear conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. I don't have to worry about any of that because I'm okay. And now now I've made a public profession, and from this point forward, it doesn't matter how I live my life that doesn't line up with scripture either for indeed God's great goal in transforming and changing us and extending grace is to save us but not just to save us once and for all not just to give us a get out of hell free card God's purpose is not just our happiness in this earthly experience it is our holiness in his eternal kingdom God wants to change you He wants to transform you. He wants to transform me. But understand, that is a process that is ongoing. And so we come today to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And in this section, we see that God's goal, the goal of God's redeeming grace is to set us free from the penalty of sin. In other words, it is to save the sin. But secondly, we see it it is to set us free from the power of sin. It is to sanctify the sinner and then, or sanctify the saint. And then it is to set us free from the presence of sin, which is glorification. And what a glorious day that will be. When I no longer have to worry about sin and sorrow. I never have to deal with those tears of pain and perplexity because forever I will be delivered into the perfect presence of my eternal King and I will live with Him in a perfect relationship forever. It is God's grace that does all three of those works that saves us, that sanctifies us, and that glorifies us. And as we live in the midst of a fallen and failing world, we need to understand that if we are going to stand, if we are going to live, if we are going to be people who make a mark upon this world, we will do it in God's grace and in God's grace alone. So today, let us take our take for ourselves God's word and look there in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. And there, let us look and see God's redeeming grace. Let's stand now together as we read this, God's holy and inspired word. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 reads as follows. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly 
in the present age. Father, we pray now that you would illuminate our eyes. Father, let us see our sin. Let us see your Savior. And Father, let us increasingly surrender ourselves to you so that we might be conformed to your image. And Father, that we might live expectant, knowing that our hope is not pressed within this earthly realm, but our hope flows from your eternal throne. Lord, change us and transform us so that your gospel might go out in the midst of this community. In Jesus' name, Father, Amen. So we come in these moments, we indeed see in this passage that God's grace redeems us. It buys us back from sin and separation. It it restores and reconciles that relationship. But God's grace redeems the sinner from the penalty of sin, reforms the saints from the power saint from the power of sin, and rewards his people with eternal life. In other words, they are delivered from the very presence of sin. God's grace does all three of these works. It is not one iota of your effort and your strength or my effort and my strength that delivers me, that saves me, that sanctifies me, or that will glorify me. It is God's grace and God's grace alone that extends to the sinner so that he might become a saint of the living God. And as we come today, we are going to look in comparison Compare the two systems of works versus versus the work that Christ, the works of man versus the work that Christ has done. We indeed understand that within our culture there exists two possibilities, two proposals. Number one, that indeed we can earn our way to God, we can earn our acceptance before God, which would be works based, or we live in the work that Christ has done, which is grace based. Indeed, it is God's redeeming grace that changes and transforms us, that saves us, that sanctifies us, and then ultimately that glorifies us in His presence. Now, as we begin today, let us look there in verse 11 and let us see first that God's grace redeems the sinner. It redeems the sinner from what? From the penalty of sin. And as Paul closes out this section on duty of the duty of God's people to live godly lives in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our community, there he indeed intends to further the gospel through the Christian character. He wants us to understand, though, that this character does not come from me making myself holy, from me making myself different, from me changing myself. It comes from the doctrines of grace that God's grace changes everyone. If you want to be changed and transformed, you don't need to look at yourself or to yourself. You need to look to Christ. You need to see that God never gives us the task or to do or the job to complete, that he doesn't also give us the power to do it in. And his power is not our power. It is God's grace working through us personally. Indeed, this is true in our redemption. It is true in our sanctification. It is true in our glorification. It is God's divine grace, His unmerited favor that has been given to us. Understand this. Grace is this. We deserve sin, death, and hell. We deserve God's wrath, God's righteous wrath in judgment and justice against our sin. But He withheld, not only withheld it, which was His mercy, but now He has given us eternal life through 
Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. And that is what grace said is. It is the un, unmerited favor of God that is extended to rebellious men and women who have chosen to reject His commands so that they might now be brought into a redemptive life under Jesus Christ. And it is God's grace that accomplishes everything from conversion from sin to sanctification and even conformity to our Savior in that pure and perfect glorification at the end of our lives. Now understand this. If you want to understand grace, you need to remember these words. This is a simple anachronism that will help you remember grace. Grace is this, God's riches at Christ's expense. How did God do the work to get you to Him? He did the work to get you to Him by giving His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. His riches, His sonship, His being a child of the Most High comes not by your works, but by His riches being given to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross of your sin, uh, of Calvary so that your sins could be forgiven and you could become His Son. And so Paul begins his first, this section of doctrine with a reminder that Jesus is first appearing. God has worked the work of salvation. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. It's an epiphany. It's a moment where you look up and suddenly there is light. And here is Christ Jesus presented in the Bible as God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is full of grace and truth. He lives a pure and perfect life. He walks across the plain of this earth and then He travels to the cross of Calvary so that He might suffer as a common criminal for your sins and for my sins. And there we see uh, the plan of God's salvation. How He is going to redeem humanity and reconcile us to Himself. In fact, Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 9 describe this very well. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 9 it says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die For a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But listen to this. This is a great truth of the gospel. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Christ dove into this world, into this sinful, into this dark, into this fallen world. And He dove into it and He lived a perfect life, a pure life, crawled on the cross of Calvary as a common criminal, suffered and then surrendered Himself fully so that you and I might be forgiven of sin. What a great God we serve. He takes our place so that we can take His place as a son, as a daughter of the eternal God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, And God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be, what? The righteousness of God in Him. Through this divine work of Jesus Christ, our substitute and Savior, God's penalty for man's sin is satisfied and salvation is now extended to all of those who would repent of their sin and rest in the faith, rest their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For God in His grace has sent His Son to redeem those in the bondage of sin. He has sent them, sent Jesus Christ so that we might be redeemed, so that we might have eternal life. This salvation, though, 
It's not just for some. It's not just for a few. It's for all men is what it says here in this passage. And then not only is it, is it a universal call, but we see there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as well that this is a genuinely universal call. This call extends to people from all places and all times, all points of history. And it says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and following, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. How many does he desire to be saved? How many? Are you convinced of that? All men he desires to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. See what this passage is saying is God has now appeared in human flesh. He has done the work of salvation. He has done the work of redemption. And that that call extends to all men, no matter who they are, where they are, what they've done in their past. God's extension of salvation, offer of salvation is to all men from all places in time. Indeed, there is a universal need in humanity to be made right with God. The primary problem in our friend's life is not just for them to change a few actions, not just to change a few things that they do. Their primary need is salvation from Jesus Christ, forgiveness of their sins, and brought in being brought into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. Indeed, God has provided a universal remedy in the fact that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for every sin ever committed. doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. If you want to know how you can be redeemed and made right before the living God, you can experience that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's no one here this morning who is so good that they need not be saved and no one so bad that they cannot be saved. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the worst. He had persecuted the church. He had slain Christians. He had caused much upheaval within the early church. And yet God in His grace extended redemption and salvation to Paul so that he could change and transform him to be a minister of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now, uh, now understand this. The universe, there is a universal call of God to all people, but this does not mean that we are universalists, that everyone is saved just because Christ's death was sufficient to pay the penalty for every sin. For if we were universalists, then we would deny the rest of Scripture that testifies that there are two distinct and different places that are destinations for every man within this world. For those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ and surrender to Him as Lord and Savior, They are saved and will rest with Him in eternal glory. For those who reject Christ, who walk away from Him and choose to say, you know what, God, I'm going to do this thing my own way. I'm going to try to work myself to You. I'm going to try to live like like the Gospel doesn't matter. I'm just going to go about my own way and choose my own way. There is reserved for those who reject the Gospel and the grace of God a place in eternal hell to receive the wrath and judgment and justice of God for their sins. Those are the two options. Jesus has appeared to bring salvation to all men. 
so that those who would repent of their sins and place faith in Jesus Christ and His work might receive rest in God's eternal kingdom. But there are many who reject Him, who walk away from Him. And so my question to you this morning is, what is your response to the gospel? Indeed, Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep who have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way. We choose to lie, to cheat, to steal. We choose to, to do all sorts of things that are contrary to God's will and God's commands. And we do those things. And when we do them, we become guilty. Indeed, each of us is guilty. For Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says that what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one of us here this morning that is so good that we need not be saved or so bad that we cannot be saved. For indeed, John chapter 1 verse 29, John looks out across the plain and there he sees Jesus Christ coming across the plain and he says to those around him, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At times like this, I'm reminded about that old, old, uh, little story we heard when we were growing up you remember that little children's story Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall Humpty Dumpty had a great fall but all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't what put him back together again aren't we like that See, we have sin. Each of us has sin. We have a problem with God. We're separated from Him. But the reality is, we can't fix ourselves, just like Humpty couldn't fix himself. But the reality is, there is a solution to our problem. There is one who can bring redemption and salvation in the midst of your life, no matter who you are, where you are, or what you have done. There is salvation that comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ came to our wall. Jesus Jesus Christ came for our fall so that in spite of our sin, through grace, He might put us back together again. Isn't that great news? That's exciting. I can be delivered through God's redeeming grace. But not only does God's grace redeem the sinner from the penalty of sin, but also God's grace reforms the saint. It reforms the saint. The person who is now a child of God, it reforms us in that it delivers us from the power of sin. Paul moves from that discussion of the power of God's grace to save us in verse 11 to the power of God's grace to change us in verse 12. And look there in verse 12 at what that passage says. It says this, instructing us to God's grace, uh, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. See, in Jesus Christ, not only is the penalty of our sin removed, but the power of sin in our life is broken as we receive, receive a new nature and the Holy Spirit comes to live within each of us. Now the same grace that has saved us from the penalty of our sin is sanctifying us. It is changing us. It's transforming us. It's disciplining us from the power of sin. In other words, he says, listen, you need to see and understand this. You are to avoid godlessness and you are to what? Accept godliness for those who have tasted christ and who know redemption our lives each and every day should be a closer and closer walk with jesus we should be learning to live in his grace to walk closely with him so that we are avoiding godlessness and accepting godliness 
See, Paul says grace is instructing us. It is teaching us. It is training us to look more and more like Jesus. And in order for that to be accomplished, God's unmerited favor gives us the power to say no to ungodliness and to worldly desires. The things that the Bible clearly forbids and the things of which the Holy Spirit clearly convicts us are to be left behind to be repented of so that we might pursue Christ and be conformed to His image. See, our actions, our affections, and our attitudes are not to be contrary to God's God's will and God's ways. See, God's will and God's Word should be released. Anything that is contrary to God's will and God's Word should be released at the moment that we are confronted by Holy Scripture or convicted by the Holy Spirit. We should let each of those things go so that we might walk closer to Him and so that we might be changed into His image. In addition to letting those things go, we are to pursue those things that are sensible, those things that are righteous, those things that are godly, so that indeed by our lives the world sees and knows the power of christ to change and transform each individual person first john chapter 3 verses 7 through 10 if you look there you'll find a a word of exhortation where john is warning his children what they are to avoid and what they are to accept and he says this little children make sure no one deceives you the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous the one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning the son of god appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil no one who is born of god practices sin In other words, he doesn't walk in it unwilling to repent and to return to his Savior. But rather, listen, because because God's seed abides in him and he cannot, he cannot what? He cannot sin because he is born of God doesn't mean you can't sin once. It means that you can't perpetually sin. You can't walk in sin. You can't walk in licentiousness and say, hey, you know what? I got my little get out of hell free card. Let me lay it down on this one too. I'm just going to ignore what God's command says. Going to ignore what God's word says. We can't do that, Christian. We must live lives that are transformed where we are avoiding sin and increasingly being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. For by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So for all of those who would say, hey, you know what? I can run around and live like I want to. I can drink as much as I want to. I can run around and, and, you know, live in sexual immorality. I can run around and choose to live my life however I want to. No, you can't. If you're a true child of God, you will be chastised. You will be chastened by the Holy Spirit until you repent and return to Him. Young girl who accepted Christ as her Savior applied for membership at a local church. One of the older deacons looked at the young lady and he said, Were you a sinner before you received Jesus Christ into your life? The little girl said, Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely, I was. And he said, Well, are you still a sinner? And the little girl said, Well, in fact, to tell you the truth, I feel like I'm a greater sinner now than I was before I became saved. Then what real change have you experienced? And the little girl looked and said, 
well, sir, I am not quite sure how to explain it, except I used to be a sinner running after sin, and now I'm a sinner running from sin. Do you know that change? The change of desire? The transformation that no longer are you running after sin, but you're running from sin. You're pursuing righteousness. You're pursuing a closer walk with Christ. Let me ask you this morning, what is it that will make you holy? Will willpower make you holy? Will guilt make you holy? Will a good sermon make you holy? An inspiring message make you holy? All of these things are indeed not going to make one of us holy. For not willpower, not guilt, not an inspiring message but it is a deep and abiding grace and mercy of God extended to us in Jesus Christ that gives us the power to be holy. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For indeed, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, that it is what? The Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit who lives within you. He's the one sanctifying you. He's the one reforming you, moving you along. The Puritans taught this by way of example of the live oak. For the live oak is a, one of the trees whose leaves, though they may be dead, stick to their branches throughout the winter. What eventually forces the leaves from the trees is not the abuse of the coal or the beating of the wind, but the new life welling up within the branches and forcing out that which is dead. We are the same way for our evil affections are replaced by an eagerness for good as Christ's grace wells up within us, driving out the old affections of sin and selfishness and flesh. Let me ask you, day by day, are you being reformed? Are you being changed and transformed by the grace of God? Is the old being pushed out and the new coming to bear? For indeed, that is exactly what is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you are saved and you are a Christian, that should be the context and content of your life. So indeed, grace, not only, not only does grace redeem the sinner from the penalty of sin, it reforms the sinner from the, from the power of sin, but also finally, God's grace rewards God's people. God's grace rewards God's people by delivering us from the presence of sin as God's grace teaches us to live for His kingdom in the midst of this sinful and sorry world. We also find help that indeed God's grace teaches us to live for and look for the day on which our precious Lord Jesus Christ will return to call His church home to live with Him in glory. What has started for each of us in grace will ultimately be fulfilled in glory. And we know and understand that we have difficult times here and now. Do you have difficult things you're going through right now? Are you having problems? Have you got issues, real issues that are pressing on your heart and on your life? And you're wondering, is there any hope? Is there anything that can change and transform what I'm going through? Well, look at what it says we are to hope in there in verses 13 and 14. We are to look for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave Himself to redeem us, to buy us back from lawless deeds, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, we're looking for hope. Some of you came here today, and you're going through hard things. 
Maybe it's a monetary issue. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe the doctor has given you some news that you never thought you would hear. And now you're wondering, is there any hope? Is there anything worth living for? Is there any deliverance? Perhaps some of you are here and you've got friends that are going through some difficult times. Perhaps they're going through difficult times in marriage and they're wondering, is there any hope for this marriage? Perhaps they're going through difficult things with their children and they're starting to wonder, is there any hope for this child? Is there any way that there is going to be a hopeful end to what is going on here and now? They wonder if there's any reason that they can have hope in the midst of this fallen and failing world. And you have longed to tell them, listen, everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out just fine. But listen, you're not God and you don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't understand the full pain and pale of what they are going through. And you don't know what God's plans and purposes are. But you can't. And so you can't say to them, everything's going to get better here and now in this earthly realm. But if you're a Christian, you do know that there is blessed hope because, you know, everything will be resolved at the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have have hope that even though the earthly things fall, even though we falter, even though we fail, even though we are pressed from every side with our mortality, we know Christ will return again. And when He comes, we don't know what we will be like, but we will be like Him. Job wasn't told of the situation in the setting. God didn't bother telling Job of every issue that he was about to face. He didn't bother to tell him of all the details that, that would not be resolved in this earthly life. But still, he pre- impressed upon Job a hope, a confidence, a sure and certain hope that it would be okay. For Job testifies in the midst of losing his children, in the midst of losing his land, in the midst of his friends telling him to turn his back on God, in the midst of his wife telling him, curse God and die you leave him behind job job looks and he makes that proclamation in the last day i will see my redeemer in my flesh what a powerful statement are you okay with the course of your life because you have hope that in the last day you'll see jesus in the flesh that's the power to keep going on That's the promise that reminds us we will experience full and final redemption. For Paul is reminding us that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have a sure and confident expectation, a hope that indeed you will see your Redeemer in resurrected flesh. But understand, in order for the mortal to put on that which is immortal, the perishable to put on that which is imperishable, we must pass from this life because this earthly existence is not our eternal hope. It is that eternal life that we hope in. And the ultimate hope for the believer is the blessed revelation of Jesus Christ. And God does not tell us that everything's going to be fixed fixed and fine here in this world, although we would like it to be, wouldn't we? We'd like to stop having funny money. We'd stop like to stop having mangled marriages. We would like to stop having physical problems. But listen, God doesn't assure us that everything will be fine and be fixed 
here in this earthly existence. He says in the eternal existence, He will redeem all things. If we're hoping in things of this world, we're bound to be struggling with doubt and despair because so many of our hopes are being frustrated. But listen, by reminding us of the absolute certainty of the blessed hope of Christ Jesus appearing, He says that we can have hope that transcends the midst of our situation. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're going through. Listen, you can have hope if you'll turn your life over to Christ and you'll leave it in His hands. Listen, you can have hope that He's going to work it out, not always just for just for your happiness, just for your, your gain right now, but ultimately for your good in the work of salvation and redemption. See, Jesus told his story, uh, the story to his disciples of the ten virgins, and he told them the, that they were to be watchful. They were to be anticipating his return. He told them that they were to be in a state of watchful readiness so that when the bridegroom returned, they were ready, that they were doing the will of the one who was coming to get them. Well, what does he mean by that? He means that we're living in a constant expectation of the Lord's return, and therefore we are constantly busy in all of our life with the things of the Lord. We are constantly glorifying Him. We are enjoying Him. We are doing His business. We are going where He wants us to go and saying what He wants us to say. Indeed, we are giving every moment to Him because we know He's going to return and He'll return soon. Tourists visited a beautiful, exquisite garden in Europe. And there in Italy, as they walked through the garden, he had an opportunity to speak to the gardener. And he asked the gardener, he said, Sir, how long have you been here? And the man replied, 25 years. How often has your master come to enjoy these gardens in those 25 years? Four years. Or four times. Sir, when was the last time that that master came back to inspect the garden and to enjoy it? He said, 12 years ago. Said, well, who in the world comes and checks up on it? Well, sir, I am pretty much left alone. Well, I guess you're expecting your master to come back tomorrow, huh? Sir, the man said, oh, no, sir, not tomorrow, today. Today. And I'm living like it. My life is structured because God's grace has redeemed me. God's grace is reforming me. God's grace is going to fully and finally deliver me from the very presence of sin. And so I live my life in an ordered and structured way so that when my bridegroom returns and calls his bride, the church home to be with him, he will not be disappointed in who we are and where we are and what we're doing. Let me ask you, are you working diligently for your bridegroom today? Are you serving him? See, the highest and pure, purest motivation for Christian behavior is not based on what we can do for God or how we can be accepted by him, but it is based upon what he has done and what he will yet do for us. See, God's grace redeems the sinner from the penalty of sin. It reforms the sinner from the power of sin. And it rewards His people with deliverance from the presence of their sin. And so let me ask you today, what is it that you are trusting in? See, there are two ways that that religion presents itself in our world. Do or done. And yet those two little letters in E at the end of that word make such a difference, don't they? 
Because, see, the Bible tells us not to trust in what we can do for God, but what he has done for us. For if we try to work ourselves to God, salvation does not come to us. For by grace you are saved. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How can I do that? Repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. But not only that, the second question is, if you have received Christ as your Savior, if you have surrendered to Him, are you walking daily in obedience to Him? Are you being reformed by His grace in the midst of your life? Because, listen, if you're not being reformed, if you're not being changed and transformed, then the question is, have you ever tasted salvation to begin with? Thirdly, Are you waiting with a confident expectation for your Lord to come and to carry you away? Are you living a life that is ready for your Redeemer to come and to find you walking in His grace? Father, as we come to this time, would you convict our hearts of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Father, would you lead us and guide us in the decisions that we need to make? Father, may each and every decision that is made for you lead to a life of consequence that would testify to the world of the transforming power of the gospel. Lead us and guide us in these moments. Let us be prepared, Father, to live a life that is reliant upon your grace in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we stand...